The scripture reading today is Matthew 20, 20 through 28. If you'll please stand. Then the mother of the son of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that those two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You will, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am able to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those who, for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man has come not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Brandon. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. So what do you do when you get ready for the day? You're like me, I usually, you know, get up and I get a shower and brush my teeth and, you know, style my hair and, uh, you know, I get, get, getting ready for the day, it involves several things and again, for most of us, that includes some sort of washing. The same is, is done here in, in, our, in John chapter 13 where Jesus prepares his disciples for what's about to take place. Jesus is about to be crucified. He's about to leave them. Right, he's going to be crucified, and then 40, he'll raise him from the dead, and forty days later he'll 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 be ascending back to heaven. So he's preparing his disciples for the the task that is about to be before them. And so, what does he do? Just like us, when we would prepare for the day, Jesus cleanses and cleans and washes his disciples' feet. He washes their feet. Now, this section here in John chapter thirteen is actually kind of the start of the end, if you will. This is what this section, uh, most of this section uh, from chapter 13 through chapter 17, where we'll be at for the next couple months, uh, this chapter is from 13 to 17, is known as the farewell discourse. So most of this is Jesus talking, though not all of it, but most of this is Jesus talking and telling and describing things to disciples. It's, again, it's just, so it's, it's this discourse, it's Jesus' speech, if you will, um, where he is uh, preparing to say goodbye to his disciples before his crucifixion. So uh, that's kind of our context of where we are at in our passage. If you remember, last week, uh, pretty much everyone has rejected Jesus. Remember, we saw, we saw at the beginning of chapter 12, we saw this lavish uh, example of worship where Mary pours out spikenard on Jesus' feet, washes it with her hair. Right, this lavish worship that takes place. 
And then we see right after that, we see, we see how the people, the crowds, welcome Jesus as he comes into to Jerusalem. They're waving palm branches. They're so excited. They want to set Jesus up as their king. They're ready to make him king right then and there. Then Jesus goes on to explain to them what that kind of kingdom would look like, what kind of king he will be. He will be a servant king. He will be a sacrificing king. Not a king, of, uh, not, not, not a king that will come and bring political power, but a king that will die for the sins of the people and then raise from the dead. Well, the people are pretty shocked by this, and we saw a couple weeks ago that they just don't believe. Even though Jesus did so many things among them, they still did not believe. And here we are. Jesus has now secluded himself. He is now, uh, he is now separated from the crowds, and he spends his last moments with his disciples. But let's begin in verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his, on his outer garment, he resumed his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you again for this opportunity that I have to come and to speak your word to, Lord, to, to explain your word to your people. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts even now. <clears throat> Lord, there's so much that we can learn from this passage. There's um, even the application of this sermon. Do not cover all that we can learn from this passage, all that we must do. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict where it needs to convict. Lord, there's places that I may have missed in my presentation, in my preaching. Lord, may you convict anyway. Lord, I know that your, your conviction is not dependent on me. Holy Spirit, would you, would you work in, our, in the lives of your believers here today? Would you work in the lives of your people? Lord, if there's someone here, here who does not know you as Savior, may today be the turning point. 
May today be the day that they trust in you, that they put their faith and their trust in you. In your name, amen. So we're going to see three things as we walk through this passage. We're going to see three major applications. First of all, we're going to see that we must sacrificially love our enemies. Second, we're going to see that we must humble ourselves to truly believe in Jesus. And third, we're going to see that we must respond to the gospel by serving one another. So here we are. Let's, let's, let's start walking through this passage. These first five verses, really in, in, a, in a large sense, in, in the sense of the narrative, are kind of just setting up the scene for what we have here where Jesus washes the feet. But there's even still, within these five verses, there's so much that we know and what we can learn about Jesus and what we can learn about how we can sacrificially love our enemies. Jesus begins here, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So setting up timeline, uh, this is either, uh, scholars are kind of divided on this particular issue. This is either exactly the day of the Last Supper or it's the day before. We don't know exactly if this was the Passover meal or not. The text is not clear on whether this particular dinner that they're having is the actual Last Supper uh, or if this is the day beforehand. Uh, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. They're having this meal. The timeline is, is really pretty irrelevant to John, obviously, since he does doesn't make it clear. This is before the feast of the Passover, so it's before that actual holiday, it's before that actual event. This is before the crucifixion. That's what's most important here. This is before the crucifixion. Um, Jesus says, it says here then that Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now the Gospel of John for the first 12 chapters has been working up to this point. Remember, something would happen. People would want to crucify Jesus or people would want to stone Jesus to death or they'd want to make Jesus their king and it would say, but his hour had not yet come. Or if you, even if you remember all the way back to John chapter 3, when his mother had, had demanded that he perform some miracle for him, he says, my hour has not yet come. But here it is, now it says that the hour had come. Now, this whole moment that the bull book of John has been leading up to, here it is. The hour has come when Jesus was going to be crucified. The time was on us. It's, it's, it's coming. It's very close. We even saw a glimpse of that in chapter 12 when the Gentiles came to talk to Jesus. And he says, my hour has now come. Right? So now we're here. We're here in these moments. These last several chapters are all about this climactic moment moving toward the cross. So the hour then is, is we should understand the hour in this passage, just like in the rest of the book, is a reference to his death and resurrection. Jesus then says that his, his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So these phrases he's using of this world and his own, this should hearken us back to, we should have in mind how John defined these terms in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1 verse 9 it says, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world into this place, into the cosmos, into the, into the world, the, the place where sin and darkness exist. This is the true light. It's coming into the world of darkness. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, 
and his own people did not receive him, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And here we have that same understanding. Jesus is about to go depart out of this world. He has come to the world. The God has become flesh, and he is in the world. And now he's about to depart from the world. And it says then he loved his own who were in the world. Now again, remember in John chapter 1, it says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. There's a shift that takes place here. So in John chapter 1, his own are those people who are relatives to him. It is his, his uh, in, that, in John chapter 1 specifically, it's talking about, one, it's talking about his creation, those who he had created. But even more specifically, it's talking about the Jewish people. The people that were the same nationality as him. God's chosen people. The people of Israel. He came to his own people and they did not receive him. So here in John 13, we see a shift from his own being the people of Israel to his own being those who follow him. Being his disciples. It says here then, when it says then he loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His own is his disciples. It's the 12 disciples that are right with him right there. And so, so here it is talking about his own has shifted from being a, a, a people group to being a community of believers. He loved them who were his own and he loved them to the end. This phrase here is so beautiful. It's, it's this it's a very emphatic phrase. It means he loved them forever. He loved them even to death. Right? Um, he loved them to the end. The way that Jesus displays his love for his, uh, for his own is in the cross immediately ahead and in the act of self-abasing love, the foot washing that anticipates the cross. So Jesus is going to love them to the end. That is to the cross specifically here and he's even going to show that by his action that he shows here in, in in washing their feet he is demonstrating the type of love that he will bring to the crucifixion verse 2 then continues on it says during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of judas iscariot simon's son to betray him so what does this mean here we have this phrase uh the devil put it into the heart of judas is judas responsible then yeah. right he is. Absolutely. Before we're tempted to say, well, it wasn't Judas's fault. The devil made him do it. Right? Just like we like to say, right? The devil made me do it. Okay? What this is saying here, when it says here that Satan had, that, that, uh, that, um, that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, this is how we should understand this. The idea is not that Judas was not responsible for a heart that is incited by Satan actually wills what the devil wills. So when we even say the devil made me do it, what we're saying is that my will is in line with what the devil desires. Same with Judas here. This action that Judas is about to take in betraying Jesus, it is that, the, that his will is in, the, is in line with the will of Satan. And ultimately, it shows that this act of wickedness, even though it was done by human agents... It shows that, that this action was nothing less than satanic. Just like every one of our sins, our actions are nothing less than satanic. No matter how much we try to say, well, you know, we're all human, we're all going to make mistakes. Oh, you know, it's not that big a deal, we all do that kind of stuff. 
Every one of our sins are an act against the very throne of God, and every one of those sins, every one of those actions against God are just as satanic as what Judas does here. So let's not forget that as we move through this passage. It says, Then Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. This then, he says here that he has given all things into his hand. Jesus has all power. We might expect then, having just been revealed that Judas is being led by Satan to perform this act of betrayal. Well, Jesus has all power. Maybe Jesus is going to do something major right here, right? Maybe Jesus is going to, uh, we might expect that his knowledge of Judas's plot, which we see in verse 11, this would result in an unstoppable blast of divine wrath, right? That he's got all power. Judas, knock it off. Boom, right? Take care of it right there. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? He got up from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now to understand this, the, 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 the whole full weight of what's going on here, we may not think of this in the same way that they did. In, the, in this culture at the time, washing feet, now remember, people didn't, you know, weren't wearing shoes, right? They had sandals on, they had dust roads, they're walking around in dust roads, and it may be a while before their feet get washed, okay? This is a task that was done at special meals and things like this, like, like this one, um, and, and what would happen is people, you know, again, because feet are nasty, especially so in these days, um, they, you know, they would wash their hands and stuff like that. But they would, they would, what they would do is they would lay and recline at a table and their feet would be sticking out backwards away from the table because that's gross. You don't want your feet there. Even still today, probably you probably think, might think feet are pretty gross and you might not want to touch someone's feet. However, in this day, it was, it was usually the host would have a servant that would take care of that issue, would, would wash people's feet for them as a courtesy to them. Now, not just any servant though. This was considered to be something that was even was so low, was such a, a low practice, was so, for such a low person that the Jewish servants were not, were, did not have to do this task. A servant who was Jewish would not even do this task. This task was reserved usually for servants that were of a Gentile background. They were even lower, right? In the minds of the Jews, they were even lower. They can do the foot washing thing. We're Jews. We can't even do that. Not even our Jewish servants can do that. So Jesus takes off his outer garment, right? He takes the posture of the lowest of the low servants, takes a towel and wraps it around him and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now we're going to get into a little bit deeper what this is, what's going on here and why this is significant and why this is important. But at this point, let's remember this. Well, so Jesus takes on this posture of a servant, which Philippians 2, uh, hold on, before we move forward here, but the, uh, Philippians 2 says this is the posture Jesus took, takes when he goes to the cross. He took on himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man 
And being found a fashionless man, he humbled himself even to death, even to death, even death on a cross. I'm not quoting it exactly there. I'm trying off the top of my head. Brendan, see, there you go. Um, so uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, so uh, he, Jesus takes this posture of a servant that he will even take at the cross. But what's significant at this particular moment for us to learn, for us to understand? Does Jesus say, I'm not going to wash Judas' feet? No. He washes all of the disciples' feet, even Judas. Even his enemy, even the guy that hours from now is going to betray him with a kiss. And he will be led to be crucified because of the actions of this man. Jesus still washes his feet. The God of the universe who has taken on humanity takes the lowest of the low position, gets on his hands and knees before his very enemy and washes his feet. What humility. What an amazing picture of the cross. What an amazing example for us. We also must sacrificially love our enemies. Because of the cross, our response to those that we would consider our enemies is to serve them. For many of us, our, our thought is that our enemies, we need to blow them up or we need to get rid of them or, you know, whatever happens to them, I, I'm glad for that, right? We may think of political enemies, right? Maybe ISIS comes to mind. I mean, when you think of our enemies, you think of ISIS. Blow them up, right? Come on, where's the biggest bomb you can get and blow them all up? Come on, Donald, do it, right? What does Jesus say the response of a Christian ought to be to someone like our enemies, like ISIS? To serve them. Have you considered that? To serve our enemies? To send missionaries those people who are dying without a savior. What about work enemies? What about someone who you go to work and you can't stand that person, right? They, uh, they irritate the living snot out of you. The last thing you want is to say anything nice to them. As a Christian, what should your response to be, be because of the cross? Serve them. Some of you are still in school. What about at school? That person I can't stand. They make fun of me every time I talk to them. They're mean to me. I don't want anything to do with them. I'd rather have a ton of bricks fall on their head for all I care. What does Jesus say? Serve them. Love them sacrificially. And what about church enemies? Ooh. People that maybe even within this congregation right now, within this building right now, that you won't even look across the aisle at them because you can't stand them or they've hurt you in some way. Or maybe there's someone in this community who has hurt our church. This church has been through a lot as far as I understand. There's people in this community that I'm sure that have, that have hurt our church deeply. As our response to cross our arms and say, I hope they don't come back here. I don't want to see them come through these doors again. Or is our response more like Jesus? What can we do to serve them? Can we make them meals to help them? Send them on their way to make sure they have a great week. 
Have them over for a steak. Invite them into our homes. Serve them. We must sacrificially love and serve our enemies. What are we as a church doing to serve those who have hurt us? Secondly, we see here that we must humble ourselves if we're going to truly be followers of Jesus, to truly believe in Jesus. Look how Peter responds then. John does, he focuses in on Peter's response. Right? So Jesus has been washing all the disciples' feet, and here he is coming to Peter. Loud mouth, stick his foot in his mouth, Peter. Right? We've seen Peter do this before. We're going to see him do it again. Lord, I'll never betray you, or I'll never deny you. Three times later, what happens, right? A rooster crows, and here we are. Right? So Peter, big loud mouth, stick his foot in his mouth, Peter, does what we expect him to do and sticks his foot in his mouth while Jesus is washing his feet, actually. It's even more ironic, right? Um, so Peter here, uh, he says, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? The language there is actually very emphatic. It's, do you wash my feet? Like, why are you doing this? I don't deserve to have my feet washed by you. You're greater than I am. What are you doing washing my feet? Peter felt that he had to object as he saw his friends, uh, their feet be washed. He says, are you going to wash my feet? What well, looks to us like it might be an objection just rooted in modesty, you know? Like, no, you're not a servant. Like, don't do that, right? It's really, at the end of the day, it's really disobedience and self-righteousness. Peter is actually rejecting the grace of God, the gospel, even though he may only have understood that he was acting out in modesty. Right? In his mind, he might have been thinking, this is immodest. Like, I mean, you're our master. What are you doing? Doing the job of a servant. But what is Jesus picturing? What is the image Jesus is trying to give to us by washing feet? It's that he is going to serve us by going to the cross. What is humiliating right now, this humiliating task that he's taken on of washing feet is just a small picture of the humiliating thing he is about to do to bring us salvation and going to the cross. This is what he is showing them as he prepares to cleanse this community, as he is cleansing them and getting them ready. He is showing them what he is going to do at the cross. And Peter here is trying to reject that. How dare you wash my feet? Peter is essentially acting in self-righteousness. I can't have my feet washed by you. I'm, these other guys have let you do it, but I'm not going to let you do that because I'm way better than that. Right? And ultimately, he is rejecting what the grace that God is giving him. Then Jesus responds to him calmly at first. Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter, maybe you just don't get it, right? You'll, you'll understand it later, right? Jesus expects them to not, not question this, but just to submit to, their, to the foot washing in faith. As the disciples cannot yet understand the one whom they venerate as, that the one whom they venerate as the Messiah must go to the cross, so they cannot understand this symbol-laden acts that anticipated it. Anticipate that. It says also that they will understand after these things. This does not refer to the foot washing. He's not saying, you'll get it after I finish washing your feet. He's saying, you'll get it once I've been crucified. Right? Then you'll understand. It, re it refers to the cross. Once the cross happens, once the resurrection takes place, you will then understand what I'm doing to you. Peter then responds, right? Good old Peter. 
Once again, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. This is again, this has that double negative and then to the ages. So literally he says, you will never wash my feet for all eternity. Never. I will not let that happen. It's very strong, very emphatic. Ironically, what Jesus is doing is he's about to sacrifice himself and that sacrifice will have effects on all eternity. Right, what Peter doesn't get, what he doesn't realize, he's still thinking in, in, this, in, this, in this very uh, worldly fashion, he's still thinking, Jesus, this is inappropriate. You're our master. You're our Lord. What are you doing? You shouldn't ever be washing my feet. But Jesus, Jesus is, what he is doing is he's showing them what he is going to do at the cross, that he's going to wash all of us, and it's going to have effects for all of eternity. Jesus then responds to him a little bit more harshly. This time, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If you don't allow me to wash you, you cannot have a share with me. In other words, to deny any part of the gospel is to deny all of it. To deny any part of the gospel is to deny all of it. See, we may think, you know, Jesus dying on the cross, great. That's awesome. That's that's great. You know, I want that Jesus, you know, I want I want Jesus to be like a good, you know, I want to wear my what, what would Jesus do bracelet and let Jesus be this like great example for me and I'm going to do that kind of stuff. I like that. But this whole idea that like Jesus that I need someone to save me, that I'm broken and I need to be fixed, you know, I don't know if that's for me. Right? I like Jesus, this guy who's like gives me a really great example to follow, but this guy who dies for my sins, like, eh, I can give leave, give leave. You know, Jesus, you can die for somebody else's sins. You don't need to die for mine. I mean, mine aren't that bad. Right? To deny any part of the gospel, then, is to deny all of it. Jesus being a good example for you, Jesus being a, a moral exemplar, if you will, is not going to bring salvation. We'll, we'll break this up a little bit more in the, here in a second. Peter then responds uh, with exuberance here this time. He says, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Oh, if I don't get my feet washed, I can't have any part of you. Then, then wash my hands. Wash my head. Give me, a, give me a bath, right? Take care of all of this, right? Again, he responds, but this time in exuberance, and, and even one scholar uh, even suggests that uh, what Peter is now suggesting is that what Jesus was doing was not enough. That he is now, he has gone to the exact opposite extreme. Instead of saying, Jesus, don't do that for me, now he's saying, oh, Jesus, what you're doing isn't enough now. Right? One scholar suggests that Peter's actually made the, the absolute reverse, and he's now said, Jesus, what you're doing isn't enough. I need more of that. Then Jesus again responds back to this. This is really, this is wonderful. I love this. Verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. What Jesus explains here is that the Christian has already been washed and cleaned completely. Peter didn't need his hands and his head to be washed. He's already a believer. He's already been washed. He doesn't need that. He or she, the Christian, does not need to be cleaned again because that cleaning was once and for all and is eternal. 
Right? If you are a Christian today, you don't need to be fully cleaned again. You can't, excuse me, you can't lose your salvation. The salvation you received is taking care of that. That cleaning is once and for all. This foot washing then is a preparation for the disciples for the task of Christian discipleship. In that sense, we each need our feet washed regularly. Do we not? As we continue to walk and we continue to make disciples, we continue to be about the task of being a disciple. We need our feet washed regularly. We don't need our whole body washed. We're already clean. We do need our feet washed because the task of, disciple, of being a disciple is messy. Right? Even more so, uh, the foot washing can also be a reference, in this uh, way Jesus is explaining it here, can also be a, a reference to confession and re- repentance of sin as a believer. As our feet get dirty with sin, we, we need to confess that sin to have our feet washed. Right? We don't need to have our whole body washed. We've been completely cleaned. But we do track a little dirt. Right? We do track a little dirt when we, as we walk in this world, as we continue in sin, as we, as we are about the task of discipleship and we need our feet washed. Jesus says then in verse 11, he says, or it says verse 11 uh, ends out here, it says, for he knew that he was to, who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. If you look back in verse 10, Jesus says this, and you are clean, but not every one of you. John then explains, who is this one he's talking about? Right? What does this mean? Not every one of you are clean. He's talking about Judas. He's talking about Judas. John explains that Judas is not included in the group of those who are clean. Judas is not a believer. We will see that the community not only has to have their feet clean, but the community is also cleansed of the non-believer, Judas. We'll see that next week as Judas leaves the community of faith. Judas was not a believer. Right? Jesus, Judas had been, think about this. Judas had been following Jesus for three years, walking with him. He was even had a, he even had a job, right? He was even taking care of the money. And what does Jesus say about him? He's not a believer. It's possible for you to be a Christian or to you to come to church, pardon me, for you to come to church your whole life, to serve in the church and not really be a Christian. It's possible. We must humble ourselves to truly believe in Jesus. Pride will prevent you from accepting the gospel. Maybe you have pride. You say, I've been going to church all my life. What do I need to believe in? What do I need to accept Jesus for? I've always believed that, right? I don't need to humble myself for Jesus. I don't need, I don't need that stuff. I've always been a pretty good person. I don't really need that. Or maybe you say, maybe this is actually pretty interesting. You may say, well, I'm not good enough for Jesus to save me. What sounds like humility is actually pride. I'm so lost that Jesus can't even forgive me. I'm beyond Jesus' forgiveness. It's masked pride, isn't it? Ultimately, it is truly pride. I'm unworthy. Yeah, I bet you are. Right? Because real humility would say, I'm unworthy, Lord. Take it. I can't do anything about this. Say, I'm, I'm, I'm too lost for Jesus to take me. It's pride. It's arrogance. Coming to Jesus must include humility. 
Maybe you also have, maybe you, you may have pride in what may stop you from coming to Jesus is that you need to keep up pretenses. Well, you know, I've been in church all my life. I've been coming here for a long time. If I tell people I'm not a Christian now, that just isn't going to go well. You know, I mean, I taught Sunday school. I helped in BBS. I've done all this stuff. And if I tell people that I wasn't a Christian the whole time, it's just going to look bad. So, I don't know, I just can't do it. Friend, let me tell you, it's pride. Your pride is keeping you from believing in Jesus. Your pride is keeping you from the gospel. Your pride is keeping you from a relationship with the Lord. Humility is inherent to the gospel. We must surrender to the servant, the servant Savior. What Peter does here is he rejects Jesus. He, he is trying to reject Jesus and reject the work that he has done for him and saying, Lord, I don't need that. You can't give me that. I'm, I don't want you to do that for me. Yet what Jesus does anyway is he's, he goes to the cross and brings us salvation. And the only way we can accept that salvation is, by, is, by, is through humility. Finally, we see that we must respond to the gospel by serving one another. Jesus then takes this example and then says, now you do likewise. Look at this. It says, when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garment and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? The foot washing picture is tied to the crucifixion. Doubtless, the foot washing was shameful, but the cross would be even more shameful. In both instances, Jesus assumes the role of the despised servant for the good of others. And he says, do you get it? Do you understand what the whole purpose of this was? Do you understand what I'm doing here? Then he continues on. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. Teacher is the word for rabbi, right? You call me rabbi, you call me teacher, and you call me Lord, right? This, is, this could be master, but in this particular instance, it's probably also a reference to uh, Jesus being the Son of God. The word, that was, the word in the Old Testament that's often translated Lord to refer to God is the same exact word that's used here, right? And Jesus is probably saying to them, you call me rabbi, and you call me your Lord, you call me God, you believe that I'm God, or you say that I'm God. For so I am. You're, you, you call me teacher and rabbi, and you're right, because I am, right? I am your teacher, and I am God. Good job, you got that one right. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash, the, wash one another's feet says in here, so he gives them command, you ought also to wash one another's feet. We ought to take on the role of a servant just like Jesus has done. We are to take on the same role that he does. Not in the same way as he does, obviously. We are not called to die on a cross for other people's sins. We can't do that. Right? But we are called to serve one another. Let me be clear about this. This is not, this foot washing is not an ordinance. It's not like baptism or the Lord's Supper. This kind of foot washing that Jesus is talking about is not something that we as a church are commanded to practice regularly. Nowhere in the, in the New Testament is foot washing given that kind of a prominence. Further, as D.A. Carson explains, uh, the heart of Jesus' command is a, is a humility and helpfulness towards brothers and sisters in Christ that may be cruelly parodied by a mere rite of foot washing that easily makes masks and an unbroken spirit in a haughty heart. In other words, what the, this, this practice of foot washing that Jesus gives as an example 
is meant to teach us humility. To teach us to humble ourselves before one another, to serve one another. If we were to make this into an ordinance, if this was an ordinance that Jesus would command, the problem with that is, is that people could very easily look like they're being humble, but not really. In fact, I thought, I thought quite a bit about doing something like this for this passage. I've thought about it for several months, actually. I thought that'd be really fun. It'd be really cool, right? It'd be really cool, like get a basin out here, get a picture, wash, them, wash someone's feet, and maybe have an invitation where we have people wash people's feet. That'd be really cool. It'd be a really cool experience, right? But as the more I studied this passage, the more I thought about what happens if someone says, well, you know, because I'm a deacon, I have to. They might not think I'm a, I'm a humble person if I, if I don't do it. Or, you know, I really want people to think I'm humble. So I'm going to go grab somebody and wash their feet too. Or this could become a fiasco really quickly. So I scrapped the idea after months of trying to figure this out and wanting to do this. Scrapped it. Guys, I don't want, that's not what we want. We don't want to create a fiasco. We don't want to create false humility. We don't want to create false servants. I don't want to create a scenario where someone would feel pressure to act humble in a false way. Humility is too serious of a Christian virtue to be made a mockery of by creating a cool or exciting experience. Just because you go away, oh, that was a really great service. Isn't that so cool, everybody? You know, and I can say, yeah, it was pretty cool, wasn't it? Which would be the exact opposite effect, right? <laughs> Instead of doing that, let's just apply this message. Let's apply what Jesus taught us. Verse 16, then he says, Truly, true, I say unto you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. We need to know our place. Jesus is our Lord and master. If Jesus is our master, he is our teacher, and he has taken the posture of a servant, how much more must we do the same? Toward our enemies, toward one another. How much more should we do the same? Hearing and obeying Jesus' word brings spiritual blessing. Look at verse 17. It says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Obedience to Jesus in this area of humility toward one another. Obedience in this area brings blessing. Humility brings blessing. God prizes humility very highly. And, and, and then even so, that is one of the most difficult things for any one of us as a believer is to put on humility. So we must respond to the gospel by serving one another. So what does this mean then? What does this look like for us? How do we, how do we respond to this message? How do, we, how do we respond to the gospel by serving one another? First of all, let me point this out. Our, the role of a deacon is the role of a servant. Those of you who are deacons here today, I want you to hear this. Deacons in Scripture are not a governing body. That is not what a deacon is in the Bible. It's not a group of political people who make decisions in the church. Deacons in, the, in Scripture are primarily servants in the church. The Greek word diakonos means servant. The word we get the word deacon from, it's the Greek word for servant. So deacons, how are you fulfilling your role? Is your primary goal as a deacon to serve the church? Or do you see it as a place of authority? 
a position of political authority. Let me also do some encouraging here. I want to encourage several, several different groups of people. First of all, parents. Parents, if you're at home with your kids or if any time you're spending with your kids and you are serving your children, you are obeying the Lord. To be a parent is very difficult. To serve your children, it's a thankless task. There's so much trouble that goes into it. Amen, right? Daughter sitting right in front of you. <laughs> it's a thankless task very often. But it is something that, we should, uh, that parents should understand is an important task that God has given you to serve your families and to serve your children. Same could go for husbands and wives. Husbands and wives, your goal is to serve one another. A marriage only works if there's two servants serving one another. If one becomes the master and the other one takes the posture of a servant, it is an imbalanced marriage and it will not work well. It will be a very frustrating marriage. The only, well, only marriage that works is two servants coming to with one another. She had a friend of mine who, when he got married, that their wedding night took her, took her to their room wherever they went, and the first thing he did was wash his wife's feet. He did what Jesus did right here and said, Honey, my goal is to serve you. I thought that was awesome. I haven't washed Charity's feet yet, but she doesn't like me touching her feet, so. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to get this one done, right? i got to get some husband points here. But our goal is to serve our wives. I want to also encourage those who have served selflessly here. So there's many people in this very room who have served selflessly over the years or even today. Those of you in the sound booth, guys, thank you. Week in, week out, helping out, making sure that there's no feedback in the speakers, doing the best they can to work with the sound system that we have. Right? The people up here on the stage, they're not really the ones fixing all this, making sure it sounds good. It's those guys back there. There's also people in the nursery right now that are serving. They're dealing with poopy diapers, right? Probably our sons, right? He could be crying right now. I don't know. We don't know if my son is crying right now because there's people who are helping and serving. What a blessing that is, right? They're helping out in, the, in that way. Thank you to those people who help in nursery. There's people who have decorated, right? There's people who have decorated, make sure things are clean in here. Make sure things are decorated. It looks good. It doesn't need to, right? But there are people who decide that they want to do that. Thank you to them. There are people who serve breakfast week in and week out. If you come here on Sunday mornings for breakfast, the Sunday school classes that provide those breakfasts, what a thankless task that could be, right? People just come in and eat. And I always say thank you to these people helping out. Thank you for selflessly serving. I want to thank Wayne, Nancy, and Todd. Now, Todd's not here today, but, but week in and week out, serving up on this stage, helping out, not asking anything extra in return. What an amazing privilege we have to have these people who do this. Sunday school teachers, thank you. Week in and week out. That's a volunteer position. You guys understand. We do not pay our Sunday school teachers, even though they might want to be paid, right? <laughs> we don't pay our Sunday school teachers. Week in and week out, they come in and teach. Why? Because they love the Lord. We have people that, have helped, that help out on Wednesday nights. During, the, during the, the school year when we have the children's programs, there's, there's people, a couple of, of only a couple of few people that help out every single week with the children. 
How many of you have said thank you to them? It's a thankless task. It's a tough task. It's very difficult. I'm sure there's people I've not mentioned. There's plenty of people I've not mentioned. Um, from helping on the piano, from, uh, again, from uh, people to unlock the front doors of the church, right? Make sure that the air is on. There's so many things that go on around here. How are we thanking those people? Are we encouraging them? It's how we can serve one another. So let me ask you, how are you serving the body of Christ? There's no such thing as a retirement age from serving one another. There's no such thing as being excused because you're busy. Some of you are unable due to health concerns. That's understandable. You can serve the church by praying for your church, by being an encouragement to one another. I've already mentioned several, several groups of people, several areas where people are ministering and serving. If you know who those people are, grab them and say thank you for making sure these ministries continue forward. A healthy church member will be a serving church member. So as we close, just as the disciples needed to be prepared, we have a responsibility to one another to build each other up and to prepare one another for serving. This is why it's so important that we come, on, uh, to, come to church every week. Right, Sundays and Wednesdays, those are important times to encourage one another, to push each other forward. Even during the week, if you see another, a fellow church member, to encourage them. Right? It's, it, it's so important to, to be here for that fellowship. This is also why church membership is so important. We've talked about church membership a lot. I know I haven't even, I haven't even gotten off the tip of the iceberg to talk about how important church membership is. If you are not a member of this church, how can we know how to pray for you? How can we know how to support you? How can we know how to encourage you forward? How can you have a place to serve through which we can encourage you in your service? Church membership is so valuable and so important. I want to urge you, if you're here today and you're not a believer, if you've heard about this, you've heard about this suffering servant who dies for your sins uh, so that you may have life. If you're a, not a believer here today, Jesus has died for you. What you are called to do is to humble yourself before him. If you're here today and you're a church member and you're not serving, You've had, a, you've had a hard time finding a place to serve. The only thing that's stopping you from serving is yourself. Just because someone hasn't asked you doesn't mean that there's not something that needs to be done. How can you help? How can you serve? Find a place to serve. If you're unable to help and serve, are you praying for your church? Are you encouraging those you come in contact with from our church? These one another commands? Maybe you're here today and you have a place where you're serving, maybe you're getting burned out, I want to encourage you. Keep going. I'm praying for you. Know that you're being prayed for. Let me, uh, let me close out and we can, we'll move into this time of invitation. Lord, thank you for this day.